Welcome to the Line Life Podcast. I'm Jeff Postelway, Senior Editor of TND World, and today we're bringing you more stories of the grit, courage, and inspirational teamwork that it takes to be a line worker. Hello and welcome to the Line Life Podcast. My name is Amy Fishbach, and I'm the field editor for TND World Magazine. For this episode, we are featuring guest Nick Cummins, superintendent for IB Able Incorporated. He has spent the past 20 years in the line trade and is the son of a line worker. Nick, thanks for joining us today for the Line Life podcast. Thanks, Amy. It's a privilege to be here. Thank you. Nick, you had a passion for the line trade from a young age. Can you talk about how that developed during your childhood? I can still remember the, the teacher saying, so what do you want to be when you grow up? And I already knew the answer. I wanted to be a line worker, to follow in my father's footsteps and to honor him and to be one of those heroes. My father was a line worker. He has since retired. I spent 42 years in the line industry. And growing up, seeing his contribution and his work ethic, he was a role model for me. I was actually in my closet the other day and just cleaning some things out and going through some things. And I found my art drawing from grade school that my mother kept for so many years. And she did turn it over to me when I became a lineman. I drew a a picture of a telephone pole and some wires and a guy on a truck. And there was a guy on the pole and there were some ground workers there. And I had highlighted and wrote out that I wanted to be a lawn worker when I grew up. And that holds true to my heart still today. It really does. And even growing up through my youth, I started to begin to ask questions as I spent some time with my father when he was at home. And I remember even asking his assistance for an eighth grade science fair project, which I featured everything from the generation of power to the transmission, to the distributions of electricity and, and how we use it and facilitate it in our homes and, and local businesses. And uh, he was a big, big help for that. And uh, although that he wasn't uh, home very often. He did have to work away from home. He did really encourage and contribute a lot of my extracurricular activities, and uh, he participated when he could in, in sports. One of the biggest things that I can remember that, that set a bar high for me was his encouragement and his high expectations and the never-ending, never give up, never quit. And so having those passions at a younger age grew on me as I matured as an adult. Wonderful, Nick. I would love to see that drawing someday. That sounds so cool. And also your dad, David Cummins, had the nickname Check Check, which I would love to hear more about how he got that nickname. Also, what were some of your earliest memories of him out on the job? David Check Check Cummins. That goes way back, as you just heard, 42 years in the industry. And uh, there was a time that my father was very hard to work for. And becoming softer in his age, he was given the name Check Check because if you couldn't do it, you couldn't stay. And that reputation superseded him and it followed him around. And a lot of the crew members either loved him or they didn't because he was so strict and firm and had high expectations. But those expectations were there for the, the reasons of safety and production. He's seen changes in our culture and in the trade. He was able to control and, and contribute that way. And so uh, some of my first uh, memories of my father, of him being a line worker, was he did have to work away from his home, his family. And I can remember some of his stories coming home and, and telling and proudly sharing some of those, not only with us, but with some of the neighborhood. And as every young boy and every child sees their father or motherly figure as a hero, 
I did. I saw my father as that hero, as that image. And uh, any moment that I can uh, contribute or honor him, I'll gladly do so. So some of those stories, uh, whether it was an, a daily work week or some of those being out on storms, although that I didn't specifically know the risks and hazards in my youth, I do now. And I can greatly appreciate who he was and his hard work, his dedication to what he did for not only himself, but his family, for his team, his crew, and for the industry. Whether those stories were, again, storm-related or conversion or distribution lines and or transmission. And again, I saw him as a heroic figure. Wonderful, Nick. And now can you talk about what it was like for you as a kid watching a line crew work in your hometown? And how did that inspire you to want to be a line worker? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So thank you. So one of the memories that I have uh, from my youth again, and which I do fully feel that it, it had inspired me, was there was a, a storm event that had taken place. And uh, there was a power line that ran through our farm. And the storm event knocked out power and toppled poles, knocked the wires down. And there was a, a small crew, a small distribution crew that came up the driveway and knocked on the door and explained what they were doing. And uh, we had pointed the way to the access and I followed them back into the wood line and into the field. And they were so kind, so nice, and so proud putting up and restringing those wires and uh, setting those new poles. I can remember sitting from afar and uh, just having that impression and that environment of knowing that my father is one of these heroes. And here they are right here in my backyard doing what my father does. And, and again, it just left a, such an impression on me. And coincidentally enough, 12, 15 years later, those same crew members that knew my father, that were from the same company, actually ended up working for me up uh, in Pennsylvania for an IBABLE project. It was a distribution bundle project, but they ended up coming up to Pennsylvania and uh, they actually still remember me as being a, a young boy sitting there watching them uh, as they were made those repairs. And, and obviously they, they knew my father and it just goes to explain the camaraderie and, and how tight the industry really is, but uh, some very cherishable moments. That's awesome, Nick. I love that story. And then now can you talk about traveling for line work? Because you said you developed a passion for traveling quite early in your career. What is it like for you being a traveling line worker? I mean, every individual is different. For me, I love the travel because you never know what, what may come around the next bend. And uh, your experiences traveling is contingent on your exposure to the work and how it's related to the work at a crew level. So, I mean, in general, you can look at line work being line work. There's industry, there's safety policies, there's procedures, but it's how you execute the line work, the physical labor that I found really valuable in my learnings. With me being an IBAW member, I have the ability to, to travel the country and get exposure to different regions and areas of the country and learn different uh, techniques and how to perform the, maybe the same task but in a different way, in a different manner, maybe safer, maybe more efficient. So I'm able to pick some of those learnings from my travels and cultivate and grooming to make them my own and share those resources and learnings from those connections that I've made with my local crews here now. So you have four children and your mom and life were line-wise before that was even a thing. Can you talk about how they supported you and your dad while you were traveling the country chasing Highline work? Absolutely. So uh, yeah, we come from a very tight family, I'll say. it's And it's a supportive family. And you're exactly right. My mother, she was a great example of a line wife. 
And uh, she's really been there to encourage my father, which really encourages me. And uh, since I have been married and she's there to support and encourage my wife, which is now a line wife. And, uh, you know, it, it is funny because, you know, line wows are just now starting to get the recognition for their support and how important it is to support their husbands while they're out traveling. Even if they're not traveling, they're out doing some physical labor. One of the probably most challenging trades or industries that they're faced with, so they're faced with a lot of psychological impacts or pressures. And to have that support from a line wife is very important. It's very crucial. And it was always given in there for my mother and for my wife. And before your dad retired, you were able to work side by side with him on a few jobs. And later you rebuilt a line that he originally worked on. What was that like for you? So working for my father, again, given the name Check Check, for me, he didn't see me as any different. In fact, I was not allowed to call him dad or father out on the right of way. It was Check Check. Really? Just like everyone else. So, so uh, you know, with that, he had, again, he had high expectations for everyone on the crew, including myself. And he probably held himself to, to the highest expectations, but it was challenging. And a lot of that may have been self-induced, uh, especially the first years uh, in my career working and being around him and, and seeing him as the boss, as the leader. Uh, I felt like I could never get enough done for him, that it didn't matter how hard or, or how long or how much that I got done as far as work related, I couldn't get enough done for him. And so there was a lot of times that I worked for my father doing a lot of different aspects of transmission work, both energized and de-energized. I was given a lot of exposure and learnings around him. We worked several projects together and uh, there was one project in particular located in New York that I can remember him rebuilding. It was about 14 years ago now. And uh, there was a local contractor out in New York. They gave me a call and I was going very descriptive over the scope of work and the location of the project and asked me to come up and manage and run it for them. And so well, this might sound like a coincidence, but does it come out of Port Jervis across I-84 coming into New York out of Pennsylvania? And uh, they said, As a matter of fact, it does. How do you know? And I said, well, it's funny you say that. I was on that years ago with my father. And of course, then it, it still was in a disbelief to them. And they said, well, would you want to come up here and run this course? We can't think of anybody better to, to run it, knowing this steep terrain and some of the challenge that the project has and uh, really fill you for a good fit. I said, oh, I'd be honored to. And, and uh, I was so proud and, and honored to, to call my father up and uh, reminisce over a project that he rebuilt 14 years ago that it was already up and uh, ready for another rebuild. And coincidentally, it was actually due to a face-to-ground clearance issue. It was nothing that he or the crews did wrong. New standards came out. It's really cool that you're able to work on that line, Nick. I bet that really meant a lot to you. And over your career, you said you enjoyed doing bare hand work. Can you describe the experience of working on a bare hand crew in Connecticut to replace hot spot sleeves, dead end bodies, and jumper paddles with implosive connectors on an energized 345 kV line? So the bare hand work that I that was exposed to, a lot of that was under my father and some of the the true veterans of the first generation bare handers. So we were called by our customer to come in and perform some bare hand work. And this particular job, they wanted to use implosive sleeves. And it was on a 345 line, bundle conductor, 2156 wire. And what was unique about this job was they wanted to replace all the sleeves, the jumper paddles, and dead end bodies, as you indicated. And the uniqueness with this was one is 
this location. It was very near Hartford, Connecticut. So it was very urbanized. And so there was one hazard and, and one mitigation that we had to look at. And secondly, the implosive sleeves had never been done before for this size of wire with this high voltage during energized conditions. So there was a lot of challenges that we had to go through just to achieve the success of that project. And it all started with our training. Uh, a lot of the training was done de-energized. A lot of it was even done on the ground, for example, especially when we were starting to introduce the implosive sleeves to the 2156 wire, just to see how things would react. There was a lot of data collection and information taken, video of the implosive sleeves detonating, for example. That way we knew under energized conditions what to expect and, and then how to react if there was some sort of exposure. And then now I'd like to talk about leadership because you had an opportunity to lead a crew pretty early on in your career. What lessons have you learned about leadership since that first experience? So, yep, my first leadership role uh, was introduced to me uh, during a, uh, a thunder lightning storm uh, during the summer. And uh, there was a call that came in. It was late Friday night. And uh, there was only actually three of us that took the call. And uh, we met at the, our local barn and uh, loaded up our gear, loaded up our trucks, and we headed north and then into the north country of Pennsylvania. And uh, we worked into the night and up until the morning. And that's when we were given some support. Some of the other crew members had come into work uh, along with our general foreman. And uh, I'll never forget, we were boomed down. We had the spec book open and uh, we were getting ready to frame this pole out. And uh, of course, we had flaggers set up and our tailboard was in order and out on the truck as well. And uh, one of the first things that he does is, is come over and he asks for the, the tailboard. And uh, I go over it with him and I hand it to him and uh, he hands it back. And he had asked a series of questions, you know, what we were doing, how we we're feeling and, uh, you know, if we needed anything. And, and the conversation went on that he needed a foreman to step into the role. And uh, so he asked the group, the, the three of us, well, uh, you know, guys, I need a foreman to step up and, and uh, manage and run the crew here. And everyone, you know, pointed at me and, and, uh, you know, of course I was, you know, resilient to take it. I didn't feel maybe, you know, like I wanted the responsibilities of being a foreman at the time. And uh, he actually pulled me aside and, and said, I was doing everything anyway. I conducted the tailboard. I was the one that filled it out. And I had the spec book open, reviewing how to frame the pole. And so, you know, he convinced me into holding the foreman spot, but I agreed to it under the condition that, you know, upon returning to normal work, that I'd be, you know, going back into uh, a lineman's role and he agreed to it. And uh, little did I know that, you know, come back to normal work and uh, he shouted my name from across the laydown yard and, and flagged me up and handed me a folder that had a stack of jobs in it. And uh, he said that he trusted me to go out and, and take my crew that I had and, and go perform the work. And I said, well, you know, we had an agreement, you know, it's not what we agreed upon. And, and uh, he said, well, you know, if you could just help me out this week with the storm, we got a little backed up and uh, just really need to knock some jobs out and really like to try this out. I agreed to it. And, and, you know, looking back now, I really appreciate the opportunity because it was a good introduction. I'll say to leadership, you know, one of the things that I can say about being in the industry is, you know, take baby steps, take things, you know, as you're given to them, take those opportunities you're given to them, but don't overextend yourself and just be willing to change and be adaptable and overcome. As a line worker for 20 years, I know you've worked your share of storms and you mentioned there was a New Hampshire ice storm. How will that one always stand out to be one of your most memorable? Can you talk a little bit more about that one? Uh, absolutely. So I was still an apprentice. About to top out, and we were dispatched and called to an ice storm in New Hampshire. And while we were uh, making our way through Vermont, 
It was actually converted over to a, a blizzard-like conditions, and it was pretty brutal conditions, I'll say. And uh, the, you know, it was right near Christmas, the week of Christmas, I believe it was. We had been there working for days that actually felt like weeks and uh, just brutal conditions, uh, a lot of thick, deep, heavy snow and uh, working through some of the ice and uh, through the blizzard-like conditions just really took a toll on all of us. But being there for several days, we were given the circuit by the, by the host customer to go make all repairs on this circuit. We as a crew would drive down the roads on our circuit. It's typically... The circuit followed the roads and driving by this one particular house down this one road every day to get to where our work position would be for the day and essentially just working our way out and cutting in sectionalizing and energizing as we go. And it was actually Christmas Eve that the lady, had, she had stepped out in her robe right out of her front door, walks out her driveway. And as she sees me coming, she flags me down and course, I stopped my bucket truck and, uh, you know, she thanked us for what we were doing and really knew that, you know, what kind of sacrifices we were facing with the elements. She asked if we needed anything and, uh, you know, I respectfully said no and appreciated the offer and she said, well, I, I just have one question. And she said, well, I'll be able to, to have my Christmas dinner tonight. Well, I have lights tonight. I'm hosting a Christmas dinner. It's, it's one of our family rituals here to have it at my house on Christmas Eve. And I just want to know if, I, if I'll have Christmas a dinner at my house tonight. And I respectfully said, you know, we're going and trying everything that we can and I can't make any guarantees, but you know, it will do everything that we can within our hearts and within our power to, to, you know, make sure you and everyone else has lace tonight. And uh, she thanked me and on down the road, I went and uh, we'd done our work for the day. And uh, upon sectionalizing that section of line, I knew that she should have lights. And as I drove back out towards the, the main road to get back into the hotel for dinner that night, you know, I happened to look over and I happened to see her standing serving dinner through their bay window with lights and their Christmas dinner. So their Christmas dreams came true and which really, really made my Christmas dreams and my wish come true. That's so awesome, Nick. I love that story because I think it shows the sacrifice line workers make to help others and really the power of line work. That's just a beautiful story. And then can you talk now about the importance of safety in the line trade? So safety in the trade is crucial. We need to wake up thinking that we need to put safety first and foremost. It should be behind every thought, behind every move, behind every task. And it needs to be in the mindset of everyone on the crew, on the team. It's probably the utmost important, valuable asset to any workplace, specifically maybe in the trade and in the line industry itself. Because there are so many hazards and risk outs associated with our daily work. But safety is absolutely paramount. I or any other leader, we can't stress that enough down to our crew members and into our team. The important use of human performance tools and even the peer checking and the communication levels that are required and needing and the stop timeouts and the encouragement of everyone has the authority to stop work. You know, we need to really be bringing that home and be distilling that in every one of our conversations with the workforce. And so much so that I found a, a passion for safety and realized how important that it is 
to me and the importance uh, of others and their families that we should be, you know, leaving the same way that we came in for the day. And uh, so I furthered some education on my own and uh, became uh, a certified utility safety professional uh, or cost for short. And I uh, also obtained um, uh, my ESU credentials, electrical safety for utilities. And here in the future, I do plan on just further educating myself and understanding what kind of more importance or cultural changes that are upcoming. That way I can just keep my team in tune and, and tell them what's forthcoming. And Nick, now you're working as the superintendent for IB Able. Talk about what a day in the life is like for you right now. So Amy, the, the superintendent role is very demanding. It's never ending, I'll say. But with that, I'll say that I love it. I really enjoy it. You know, and I can go to bed with a plan in mind to wake up and maybe go here to do this or visit this crew or possibly look and review or walk down this project that's open for bed. And uh, through the night, maybe an email will come, a phone call or text, and I wake up with an entirely different plan or change. You know, through, throughout the day, I'll say that I'm very engaged on a project level. I'm very engaged with my customers and so much so that, that I do cradle to grave all of my projects. Meaning that, you know, I'll walk it down and make a slight visit to every one of our structural locations. I'll make notes, I'll document, I'll take pictures. I'll report that and work with my project managers and my estimators. And that's how we uh, submit our, our proposals is with a lot of my cliff notes and my methodologies, and my ex execution plans. But, you know, on a project level, I'll communicate daily with all my general foremans to see if there's any direct needs from them and or the crew level, you know, communicate with the crew level. I'll, I'll go out and do safety uh, visits and give support where needed. You know, if there's a critical wire pull or a special task that needs some additional attention or support, you know, I'm there in the field with them there for the support, the encouragement, whatever the crew may need. But then I'm there for my customer as well, whether it's logistically facilitating the materials and or a lot of other different things for the customer level. Nick, now let's talk about tools and technologies. How have they advanced over the two decades you've worked in the line trade to make your crews more safe and efficient out in the field? So the, the tools that I've seen, you know, a lot of them battery operated now. They're more convenient. They're easier to use. They're stable. They're sturdy. You know, I always hear a lot of folks that say that tools aren't made the way they used to. Well, maybe not a lot of times they are, but they're a lot more convenient and easy to use. So with the advancement of those battery-operated tools, the technology behind them, the technology and the equipment, a lot of the safety features, for example, your LMI switches, your outrigger stabilizer sensors, uh, your HOP functions and things like that have developed along with technology and within the equipment. One of the things that I can say with technology that I find everyday use is the use of smartphones, uh, the use of a computer from an understanding of, of whether it be mapping or looking at one-line diagrams. Maybe there's a, a GPS coordinates that I have to overlay in the Google Earth. Tools have become easier to use, more convenient, battery operated, along with the equipment easier to use. For example, one of the projects that we had on the Susquehanna River, we were looking at a 336-foot aerial lift. And before, I actually remember having crews out climbing this tower, it's 305-foot tall, and here we are taking bucket trucks in there now that are 336-foot in height. So there's a lot more change coming too, Amy, I'll say. Again, we just have to be adaptable and, and be acceptable of that change. And Nick, can you talk about the river crossing project that IB Able was on and what are some best practices or technologies that helped you out on that job? 
Yep. Thank you. The river crossing project is a super project. It was put out by one of our host customers of uh, one big massive project. And uh, we were given a couple of segments of the super project. Uh, but this one segment in particular just focused on the river crossing. It was uh, uh, roughly a, a mile and a half long. It was the replacement of 16 spans, which two of those were super spans that, that crossed the, the Susquehanna River. And it was a complete rebuild and a relocate, I'll say, of the existing double circuits that were actually built in 1927's record show back. So we replaced the, the circuitry. We replaced the transmission line uh, with 18 spans. They actually added a structure within the Susquehanna River. So with the project length, I know it doesn't seem like it was uh, very long in length or in duration for that matter, but uh, we had a, a lot of obstacles and a lot of challenges uh, that we faced on a daily basis. One of those uh, is the, uh, the, the two Amtrak crossings that we had on the east side of the river. Uh, those were live. Those were active daily. And with that, they had energized transmission lines of 138 uh, kV. They had their catenary energized lines, and they had their signal lines that were also energized. And then we had on that same side, the east side of the river, we had Norfolk Southern tracks. And then on the west side of the river, we had a north and south Norfolk Southern tracks as well. So a lot of that took a lot of coordination just to facilitate our work on a daily basis. And for example, we did have to coordinate some of the transmission outages to pull our transmission conductors over their transmission lines. So there was a lot of daily coordination with this, just the railroads, Pennsylvania fishing game, just the list went on and on. And one of the biggest things too, there was three regional airports. There was the Harrisburg International, uh, and then a couple other regional airports relatively close to where we had to report out daily our flight patterns when we were using our helicopter. And secondly, you know, our boom heights and our crane heights for setting uh, some of these poles, some of these structures. And so with that coordination, we were able to successfully complete the project. So in order to cross the river and to perform our work, we had uh, several subcontractors working underneath of us and uh, access, we had to construct 1700 foot causeway from the west shore uh, of the Susquehanna River that accessed onto the first island. And uh, there was a work pad made on that island. And from that work pad, that island constructed a pontoon bridge that spanned 800 feet that uh, spanned. And that's where we found the second island. The second island is where the existing structure was. It was a uh, 305 foot tall on a 12 foot foundation reveal, steel lattice tower, again, built in 1927. And uh, the new transmission line was going to be relocated just south of there. So we had room to work and do a lot of make ready and prep work. So while a lot of the access was taking place, that's where we'd done a lot of our pre-outage work on the inlands, prepping our poles and facilitating a lot of the logistical side of things. And to mention the, uh, the pontoon floating road, that took a lot of different layers just to achieve that 1,800 feet. For example, we had barge work. We had an underwater drill team that had to drill grouted rock anchors and bedrock of the Susquehanna River. And following that, we had a dive team, a dive crew that came in to install the hardware on the anchors. And then they installed the grout around the anchors. 
And then they attached the anchoring system to the floating pontoon bridge as it was constructed out from the first island to the second island. So there was a lot of daily moving parts on every level, whether it was above grade, below grade, coordination, facilitating information. But in short, we all worked as a team. And moving on to our drilled pier foundations, another subcontractor, this was also a challenge as an obstacle, but we had a great team in place that was able to achieve uh, 22 foot reveals that they, they were set in bedrock and they were designed and engineered to be drilled and poured through bedrock. And so once the foundations were cured, that's when I'll be able brought their team in and uh, started the rebuild of the existing line with it being built just to the south of the existing line, we're able to set poles and fly in our ropes with our helicopter. And we were able to demolish the existing. And again, all coordination went through a lot of our railroads and PA fishing game to coordinate the removal and the installation of all the new wires. It was this type of work ethic by every team member that really led to the success in the conclusion of the project. We actually able to, to finish it weeks before the energization date, the required in-service dates. We're able to achieve all of this and work hand-in-hand hand together and be successful with zero accidents and zero incidents. We were all very successful and replacing the existing surgeons with a new line, it was something that I don't ever see happen again within my lifetime. Yeah, with, with all of us working together as a team, we're able to, to accomplish the project successfully. Congratulations, Nick. That sounds like a fantastic project, and we look forward to profiling it in T&D World in the near future. And then finally, what do you think is your favorite part of working in the line trade? And when you look back on it, are you glad you followed in your father's footsteps? So some of the favorite parts of being uh, in the trade is you're part of an elite group. It's the commodities that we all have, that we share, and a lot of that there's some adventurous turns. There's a lot of adventure with every growth and development that we have in my company and my union. They offer a lot of growth and development. So there's some of my favorite parts being in the line trade. It's the brothers and sisters in the industry that really have your back. And it's the camaraderie at the end of the day. And knowing that we're our brother's keepers, that holds true to my heart. And I am very, very privileged and very honored to have the opportunity to follow in my father's footsteps. There's nothing else that I would rather do. And I find it a joy every day. I do love what I do. And I love giving back not only to the community, but also to the industry and being a, a true service provider. Well, Nick, thank you so much for sharing your story with our Lion Life podcast listeners. Uh, thank you for having me, Amy. This episode of the Line Life podcast was written, recorded, and edited by Amy Fishbach. It was produced by Jeff Pulstaway. That's me. To listen to past episodes, visit www.tdworld.com backslash podcasts or find us at Podbean. You could also drop us a voice memo or message at linelifepodcast at gmail.com with your comments on this episode. We'd love to hear from you. Please follow this show on Podbean or your favorite podcasting app to be updated when new episodes are released. Thank you for listening.